Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wyoming Institute for Humanities Research podcast. The following episode is taken from our Think and Drink series of talks, which are informal conversations by humanities faculty, researchers, and practitioners on a range of topics. Please subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook for notifications on future events. Welcome everyone to the Wyoming Institute for Humanities Research Think and Drink series of virtual talks. Uh, we hope you are all as well and healthy as you could possibly be uh, given the state of the world in which we live at the moment. I'm Scott Hinkle. I'm the director of the Wyoming Institute for Humanities Research and I am so happy to welcome you to uh, uh, tonight's conversation which is titled Democracy in America and around the world pre and post COVID-19. Our speakers are Dr. James Arvanatakis, who is the Millward L. Simpson Visiting Fulbright Professor, the School of Public Affairs and International Studies at the University of Wyoming, and also Associate Vice President for Research and Graduate Studies at Western Sydney University. And also Dr. Jason McConnell, who is Assistant Professor of Political Science in the School of Politics, Public Affairs, and International Studies here at UW. And tonight's panel will be moderated by Dr. Jean Garrison, who is the Director of the Office of Engagement and Outreach and Professor of International Studies and Political Science. Tonight's events has two co-sponsors, uh, the University of Wyoming Office of Engagement and Outreach, and this is part of their Malcolm Wallop Civic Engagement Project. Tonight's event is also co-sponsored by the Wyoming Humanities Council, which I'm so happy to serve on as a member of their board of directors. The Humanities Council is a vital part of our state's civic and cultural network. And this presentation is part of the Humanities Council's Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative, which is funded in part by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. As part of that, please look, hopefully mid-summer, for the, for the release of this forthcoming book, Democracy Under Construction, uh, which is also part of the uh, Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative. We're so excited to share this book with you and hopefully if we are released at some point soon uh, to tour the stage in person, uh, if not virtually uh, in the next academic year with that book. So please help me welcome Drs. Arvana Takas, McConnell and Garrison. Well, um, Scott, thanks so much for having us. Um, it's really uh, terrific to have the Malcolm Wallop Civic Engagement Initiative partner with WIRE, the Wyoming Institute of Humanities Research, as well as um, uh, the Wyoming Humanities Council. Um, and I just want to give a shout out to uh, the faculty who are with us, James and Jason. They're uh, with the School of Politics, Public Affairs, and International Studies, as Scott mentioned, and uh, they're just fantastic colleagues. And we're really sorry for those of you who've joined us from around the state where we weren't able to be see you about two weeks ago, but uh, it's been a great opportunity to do this. And one final thank you before I start throwing some questions at um, James first and then Jason, and that is that um, the Malcolm Wall Civic Engagement uh, Project is supported by the Turner Foundation and a lot of friends of the Wallop Initiative. And I just wanna say particularly thanks to them as well. So it takes a village in this context and it's great to have to be here with all of you. Um, so um, as I noted, the Malcolm Malbec initiative is, uh, well, it's focusing on much what 
the Humanities Council does, which is to have conversations on topics of major interest um, to people. And um, when we focused on democracy in America and around the world um, in some of our presentations and the work I've been able to do with James and Jason, it's been about thinking about what are similarities and differences. And so I wondered if James might not take a moment and share with us some key trends he sees that are reshaping our democracy. So what are those, tre what are those trends that you see and um, have been thinking about quite a bit doing work on, James? Thank, thanks, Jane. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, wonderful to be here. And, and thanks, Scott, um, for, for the invitation. Uh, look, I, I think there are a number of trends that are, are definitely worth noting. Um, one that I think is, is, has, a, has a, had a tremendous impact on our, on our, me, on our um, politics has been the uh, sort of fracturing of the media. Uh, and I think the rise, there's, and it's, this is a big challenge because historically, when we look at how nations are formed, uh, they are formed uh, by actually having a national identity. And a key part of that national identity is having national conversations. And, you know, over the last 20 years, we've seen a, a dispersal of that national conversation with the fracturing of the media and the rise of social media. So it's not social media per se, it's just the fact that there is no, I suppose, uh, forum like there once was for us to have the same conversation. And you see this, uh, you see this happening when, uh, you, you know, you look at the most popular uh, websites, uh, depending on uh, where your political leanings are, uh, people will be attracted to different websites and they're having very different conversations. So as a nation, um, you know, America, it's, it's highlighted in America, but it's happening in, in countries across the world. This fracturing of the media means that we're not having national conversations like, like we one did. Um, the, second, the second point that follows from that, which I think is really interesting and challenging, is that we're losing the ability to talk across, talk to each other. So I think um, we, because we're drawn to, I suppose, partisanship, partisan media, um, we are learning to speak the language of, um, of, of that media, uh, depending on where your political uh, leanings lie and you tend to echo that in your conversation. So people find it increasingly difficult to talk to a friend or a family member who has different uh, political uh, political leanings to you. And, and you see this in, in statistics, in, 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 in research, we, where they interview Democrats and they ask them, you know, what's the biggest threat to the country? And, and the Democrats say it's the Republicans. And you ask the Republicans what the biggest threat to the country is, and they say it's a Democrat. It's a Democrat. So you, you get this, this, this sort of mismatch of conversations. Um, I think the, 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 third, the third trend that I've, um, I've really um, been looking at is the decline of trust levels um, with our with our uh, politicians, and I think this is a, a big challenge because uh, you know ultimately trust in in uh, in, in the political system uh, means that you believe that those who are representing you uh, will have have your interests ahead of their own. And what we're increasingly seeing is that people feel that uh, that the interests of their own um, the, the interests of the, their representatives um, are being put ahead of the interests of the nation and their own personal interests. And this takes us, and again, yeah, there's a lot of research by the Pew Research Center that, that confirms this. Uh, and, and that means that there's, there's a sense that the, the, the political representatives in the, the political representatives increasingly do not um, understand our daily battles, do not understand the, the daily challenges we have. In Australia, we have a lot of discussions how the political class uh, doesn't have an understanding of the cost of living that uh, that say Australians are, are confronting, uh, or um, they feel that the, that the system has been corrupted by special interests, and so this mismatch is um, is creating um, 
is this, this mismatch is, is creating this sort of sense that we're not being represented. And so increasingly we're getting a rise of, of this, this disconnection. And the final thing I suppose is um, the, the parties themselves, uh, and there's been some research to indicate that the parties themselves uh, are increasingly self, um, self-selecting uh, cultural warriors. So the, 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 the idea, the history of people like, like, um, like Al, Alan Simpson, who, you know, who, who made, had a reputation for crossing the floor, for, for working across the party aisle, uh, those representatives are increasingly being targeted and in some ways um, pushed out of parties. And I think uh, that's, that's a trend that we're seeing in Australia. And we, we have seen it um, emerge in, in, in the US as well. And so these, these multiple trends, I suppose, are creating these, these, these partisanship fractures, which make conversations across political divides in, increasingly, increasingly difficult. Mm -hmm. um, Jason, uh, what are you thinking about in terms of trends that you're noting? You know, I, a lot of my research actually focuses on um, issues like free speech and free expression and things like that. Um, certainly social media is the hot topic in, you know, that line of research. And from that perspective, I agree with James. So uh, roughly 20 years ago, when more and more Americans started going online to uh, not just talk with each other, but also to get information, um, a lot of researchers started noting that it set up an opportunity for people to seek out information that they agree with. And over the last hand, you know, over the last say 15, 20 years, we've really seen the number of platforms explode and then that really opens up an opportunity for someone to simply consume all information from someone that is spitting out stuff that they would agree with wholeheartedly. And I think that, I think that dynamic actually feeds in with all of the things that James pointed out a second ago about it, it's not just in the United States where frequently within any given society, you have people living right next door to each other. They're working side by side on a daily basis, and yet they actually are experiencing two completely different realities because the information they're consuming is so fundamentally different. Um, I'll make one observation about um, the point that James made so eloquently about the partisan divide. Uh, there's actually a wealth of research out there that points to how rules changes within the American political parties, uh, specifically rules changes within Congress, have actually encouraged uh, members of our legislative branch to actually uh, you know, be partisan warriors for the cause and actually deter them from coming together and making some sort of compromise. If you add to that changes over the last 15 or 20 years or so in campaign finance, now you truly have a dynamic where you actually have this idea engine that feeds the notion that people can live in some sort of echo chamber. Everyone they interact with agrees with them. And when they're confronted with someone who doesn't, they truly struggle. They struggle to be able to make sense of where that person is coming from. Mm -hmm. Um, one quick question I had is, do you see, given social media being such an important political force, do you see younger, um, younger people as more partisan or less because of growing up in the, in the social media environment where you have kind of self-choosing of, or is, is there any research on that at all? I know we're going to get to that, but I, that kind of struck me. 
That's a really cool question because uh, until roughly two years ago or so, three years ago, maybe, the general thinking was, uh, yes, it actually was causing this younger generation to be more partisan. Uh, I'm, I'm really referring to the research done on young people for whom the it would have been the uh, 2008 or maybe the 2012 election was the first time they were old enough to really get engaged politically. So initially the research was, yes, you know, this might actually in, encourage a bunch of participation, the downside of which was this heightened partisanship. Mm. However, uh, the last election didn't follow that trend at all. And so the most recent round of research says, hold up, the jury may be out on exactly how these social media digestion dynamics feed in with the way our younger generations are processing things. Okay. Yeah, I, just to follow that up, Gene, um, and it is it's such a great question, uh, two, two or three uh, issues. One, um, research done out of uh, both um, Iowa and, and uh, Oxford University actually found that... Um, that young people tended to just not take news on face value. So they actually have a lot more um, uh, literacy than what we give them credit for. Like you always assume that there's just these empty vessels that just see some fake news and just take it in and then just like accept it. Actually, um, it found that, that uh, especially in the younger generation, they were much less likely to share uh, information that they were dubious about and much more likely to follow up on, on alternative sources. So yeah, so that's one interesting trend. Um, the second interesting trend, and this is uh, emerging in Australia um, really strongly, is that it's the partisanship divide is creating a, a turning away from politics. So, uh, you know, one of the things we talked about when we were in Sheridan was, was talking about how, you know, 40% of uh, Australians under 30 do not see democracy as the best form of government. Uh, and so, you know, this this, this, this is kind of, you know, they're seeing often a bunch of middle-aged men, um, often middle-aged white men, as, as, as um, some of my students say, and uh, who basically are just bickering over degrees of difference uh, rather than trying to find a solution. And so the, the, the trend seems to be, especially in Australia, um, and I, I sort of started getting, um, getting this as well in, in some of the, the conversations I've had in the US, is actually it's, it's creating a, a turning away from politics. And the third thing I think, that's, that's really, that's part of that. Um, and I think this is where it's really great if you get a chance to unpack the role of what universities can do, is that uh, I think um, we're getting this situation where, because people can't have that conversation, because as Jason said, we get this sense that people are having different experiences. I think a lot of people haven't got the ability to try and have conversations. They feel, they feel that they'll say the wrong word. They feel that they might not use the right language. Uh, they feel that they might use, offend someone. And so rather than trying to engage, um, you get actually, this also drives this, this session, this, um, this feeling of, um, of, uh, of, of becoming disengaged. Because it's like, I don't want to, I don't know how to ask the question. I don't know how to unpack this. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to turn away. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I think that would be really, that's, I think that's a really important trend that as, you know, as higher education institutes, colleges um, and universities, um, we should be able to really aim to confront that. Given mm -hmm. um, our topic is democracy, um, what, um, what does democracy mean for each of our nations, for Australia and the United States and others? Yeah, um, uh, Jason, I'll go if you want. Um, go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the, the thing is, is that um, 
de democracy is in some ways, I mean, there's, there's a general understanding of democracy, of, of having a voice, of voting, of being engaged and so on. Um, but we also must understand democracy has been uh, incredibly, I suppose, contextual. Uh, like it, democracy in Australia, it's compulsory to vote uh, in the, the local, the state and the federal elections. And if you don't vote, then you, you will be fined. Um, and, you know, in a population of 25 million, uh, spread over quite a vast nation, which is about the, the same physical size as the US. Uh, enforcing that is is sometimes difficult, but it's something that the government does because it's 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 part of our it's part of our legal system. And so, I suppose democracy is seen as being uh, we 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 vote on uh, on on weekends on on Saturdays, um, and uh, and it's it's a bit of a celebration. Um, so democracy, I suppose, is seen as not just being. Um, about the right to vote. It's also been seen as a, a sort of a, a, a thing about celebrating our right to vote, um, going out and um, being, um, uh, being um, you know, the, the, the someone's just put up there, we have the, the democracy sausage, uh, we have big sausage sizzles and, uh, and, uh, and our politicians go and, and we analyze their style of, uh, of, of eating the different sausages and the, 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 the attempts. But what's key is that it's seen as being a, a quite a, a lot of a separation. I'm oh, sorry, quite a, a, quite a bit of a celebration. And that's an important element of, um, of democracy in, in Australia, which was somewhat different what I noticed in the US where elections happen during the week, it's, it's not compulsory. And so a lot of effort has to go into encouraging people to get out and vote. And I think there are pluses and minuses for, for, for both systems that are worth unpacking at some point. I'm Jason. So, you know, in America, we start, we start teaching children about democracy when they're in grade school. We start teaching them about, um, you know, everyone gets a vote, everyone gets a say and that sort of thing. But, you know, that being said, in any given election year, 2020 being one of them, um, I, you know, I'm not going too far, too far out on a limb to predict there's going to be a lot of people lamenting low voter turnout. So in any given presidential election year, roughly a third of eligible Americans actually turn out to vote. And so then that sets up this question, if democracy is actually ruled by the people, are the people actually doing that if something less than a majority of them ever actually show up to vote? And so certainly compulsory voting systems like Australia's might, you know, might attempt to speak to that. But uh, I, I challenge our audience to think about an alternative. Uh, in America, we have democracy on steroids. Uh, when I go to vote in November, uh, who knows how that's actually going to be in light of the pan pandemic, but I'm holding out hope that I get to actually go show up and vote in November. Um, on my ballot, I'm going to get to vote not just for the President of the United States, not just for a member of the House of Representatives. Here is this laundry list of positions that we vote for. In Laramie, Wyoming, where I live, uh, we'll vote on representatives of the Water District and for the county commissioners and for the city council and the county coroner and all of these positions. And so there's actually a wealth of research out there that indicates um, Americans might actually have democracy fatigue. We ask Americans to vote and we ask them to vote not just a little bit, but we're holding elections at least every other year for, our, you know, for a variety of offices, but sometimes every year for some local level stuff in different parts of the country. And so uh, there is something to be said for how much participation we have. 
Uh, I guess I'm one of the people who thinks that all isn't lost just because turnout's relatively low. Mm-hmm. I find I find that sorry sorry I find that incredibly fascinating that we that that you vote all the way down the ballot for things like the coroner and stuff like that. That was one of the things that um, that just really amazed me because in Australia when you turn up to vote you you, you the vote is either for the for the federal, state, or local, and you tend to vote just either for the upper house and lower house, and or or, the, or who's going to represent you on the local council, and and that's it. So it is a it is a yeah, and, and I suppose the 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 challenge then is is how much research can any person do to identify who their best representative is in some of these more obscure categories. So it's a yeah, I I, I found that totally fascinating. Um, and, and, and I, I can't see that, I, I would find that incredible, I think Australians would find that incredibly uh, wacky, is <laughs> probably the best, thing, the best way to put it, because, I mean, you imagine turning up to vote and you get this kind of long list. I mean, our system is also complicated by the fact that we have preferential voting, and, and, uh, and that means that, um, that you, number your, who, you number who you want on the electoral ballot from, you know, one to, to eight or 10 or 12, depending on how many people, how many different parties are vying for your local electorate, which creates, which creates um, a, a kind of a, a process of negotiation between the different parties. Um, and Australians find that hard enough to deal with, let alone having to vote for the county coroner. Okay, for sake of full disclosure to everyone in attendance tonight, uh, before the pandemic sent James back home to Australia, uh, he and I may have had half a dozen face-to-face conversations ranging from our offices on UW's campus to some coffee shop to some pub or perhaps even in a car ride across the state for the uh, Wallop Initiative uh, where we would have conversations about who votes for what and why. And this is not the first time I've heard James say, okay, wait a minute, you vote for what? Okay, that's kind of wacky. And then my retort to him was, wait a minute, describe for me once again what your ballot looks like. Because the last time he got into detail in describing your typical Australian election ballot, he actually used my tablecloth as an analogy. It's a very large thing looking like some sort of map, some sort of Venn diagram. Okay, so, you know, Dr. Ivanitakis, you know, <laughs> maybe in the eye of the beholder, my friend. Well, uh, there are cultural differences, which I would imagine we'll get to. And I think the other thing is, is that there are voter guides put out by a number of organiz- nonpartisan organizations, as well as others, such as the League of Women Voters. And that does help uh, to provide. So there are um, organizations that specifically um, do provide information. Of course, that's, there's a, pro- a proliferation of that as well. Um, on this democracy theme, uh, and you mentioned trust a little bit earlier in your remarks. I wondered if you'd say something about whether, you know, to what degree, more or less, does democracy require the same degree of trust that other forms of government require? To more or less? Yeah. Look, I would I would say um, democracy requires a significant uh, amount more trust. You know, I mean, in a in a in a despotic regime, you haven't got any choice really. Um, but I think democracy really is based on trust, and I think it's based on 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 trust in a, in a number of ways. But I, before I unpack some of that, I, I just want to say that um, for me, the way that I define trust, I draw on this uh, uh, British sociologist named Anthony Giddens, who describes trust as 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 
faith in the systems that we don't understand. For example, we, we trust the mechanic to take care of our car. We trust the engineer to build our, our, our plane. So we might not understand all the systems and how they work, but we believe that the people that are building it have our interests at heart. And, and he uses this concept of trust, even the way that the food is stored in, in, you know, in Safeway and, and, and you know, other supermarkets. He says this process whereby we set up these systems and we expect them to meet um, our, our needs. And so it's a quite of an interesting uh, philosophy on, on the way that the trust works. And, and so trust um, is, is really important in, in, in a number of ways for, for um, in, in democracies. And, and as, as I mentioned, one is to believe that those leaders are putting um, our interests ahead of theirs. Uh, but the second thing about trust is that um, we, that a lot of democracies, I mean, no democracy can account for all the systems and processes. And so we, we kind of um, expect or, or trust people to follow the norms of democracy. So, um, so, you know, so, you know, we, we, we believe we, we, there are certain norms that are not written anywhere, but are part of our democratic processes. And so we trust, we, we not only sort of trust the system to work to actually give us the, the right electoral process, we trust, or the right electoral result, we trust the politicians to act in our best interest, but we also trust that they will behave in a, in a certain way. And so when we start undermining those, undermining those um, in a way, it really does um, impact the way that we sort of feel engaged or empowered with political processes. And no other, no other political system confronts, confronts that need to believe that the people that are running the place are running it with your best interests at, at heart. Mm -hmm. Jason? You know, I think here, I think here in the United States, um, you know, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a split between the fact that we elect our representatives to make good choices for us. Um, and then we also have a relatively expansive bureaucracy that's doing the day-to-day -day functions of government. And so um, you should know straight up, uh, I have, you know, I have no crystal ball. And yet uh, some months ago when James and I did a presentation on uh, a similar topic at Laramie High School, just off the cuff, when we were talking about uh, trust in government, actually off the top of my head, I asked about 75 or so Laramie High School students, hey, have any of you been paying attention to this virus outbreak in China? Keep in mind, this was in like mid-January. And so I was utterly shocked when maybe half a dozen high school kids went, oh yeah, that thing is really scary. And so I kind of looked at them and then just kept moving. And I said, okay, you know, I, I've got a bunch of college degrees. I'm pretty smart about some stuff, but you know, the last time I took a biology class was in high school. And so I've got to have some level of trust in an organization like the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, that those folks there can make good decisions about the public health of the American people. So I had no idea what was coming when I said that months ago, but now as I sit back and you know, consume information online like so many of us are doing these days, you know, I sit back and think um, a lot of what's going on around the world today, pandemic or otherwise, is actually very, very scary. And so on some level, we've got to have a measure of trust that not just our elected officials, but these unelected government employees who've been hired for their expertise in their subject matter can actually deliver. 
They can actually do things for us that the rest of us can't do for ourselves on the daily. And I'm not convinced that it takes some sort of global pandemic to actually, you know, put a giant question mark on all of that trust. Uh, James mentioned the Pew Research Center earlier. Pew is a great organization. Uh, if you haven't looked them up online, I highly encourage it. Uh, they've got some really fantastic uh, timeline data about um, how Americans trust our government. And that the trend is we had generally high trust in government right up until Watergate. And then from the Watergate scandal on, Americans trust that government does the right thing has actually been in the decline historically. Um, I haven't looked at it in a few months, but the last time I did, it was at historic lows yet again. Right. And, and it depends on which institution. And, you know, and even, even the Supreme Court has had Low, much lower levels of trust. It was historically was high, the highest in more recent years. So yeah, and, and, and sorry, just 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 on that point, and I think it's important. Like in Australia, there was a long tradition of of our of our politicians refusing to criticise decisions of the high courts. Um, so you know, if they made a decision that was against um, the you know the, the the position of the government, the the government would refuse to participate in. Uh, in, in, in criticizing and saying, well, you know, the people, the, the, the men and women of the high court are beyond reproach. Um, and, but over the last decade or so, we've actually seen that reverse and been heavily criticized both before and after making decisions. And so even those trust in those in institutions has, has declined quite dramatically. Sorry, Jason, I think I'll cut you off. No, no, no you're fine. Um, actually, I just wanted to make a shout out to Wyomingites. Um, the University of Wyoming's political science department has been collecting data for years and years and years on this question of trust in government. And so I just have to make a plug for you know, all of my fellow Wyomingites. Uh, it turns out historically, Wyomingites trust our own government, Wyoming state government, at double digit levels higher than whatever the contemporary trust level is in the US national government, the American government as a whole. Of course, you know the logical explanation for that is you know, Wyoming's the uh, very, you know, the small town with really long roads. Um, usually I ask my college students, how many of you know someone who works for the state of Wyoming? You know, hands go up around the room. Everyone knows someone. It's their aunt. It's their uncle. It's their cousin, third removed. It's their cousin's ex-wife who they like better than their cousin and still talk to. And so, you know, we know our government here. It's a connection thing. Mm -hmm. Um, we have a question in the Q&A, which is related, and that is, how do we rebuild trust in politics and politicians in Western democracies? <laughs> that's, that's, um, that's, the, the, um, that's the big question, I suppose. Um, look, uh, you know, a lot of my research in Australia has looked at the relationship between young people and, um, and governments or different governments at different levels. And a lot of the trust has disappeared because... Uh, whenever there's a, a process of consultation, for example, uh, government uh, officers or, or, or politicians tend to approach, say, young people with one of two things. They, they either turn up and say, here's a blank sheet, tell us what you want. Um, and, you know, if I, if I was asked what I wanted, I'd, my answer would be, can I have a spaceship, please? Um, you know, we, we know that's not going to be achievable. And so they, they come up with this list of, of, um, of, uh, of requests uh, uh, you know, when, when it's something, it might be something about, you know, how do you want better representation in politics to, to deal with your issues? So they come up with a list of requests and the government says, oh, thanks for that, we'll read it and we'll get back to you. And they never do. 
or they come up with a finished document and said, oh, this is our finished document of how we're going to improve representation for young people in politics. Um, have a read and let us know what you think. And then they come back with all these feedback and, uh, and then they say, oh, well, we've already printed the, the brochure, so we can't change anything now, but we'll, we'll consult you in the next iteration. And I never hear from them again. So I think one, there's, there's, there's probably a couple of things that I, I think um, is fundamental. And I think one is, is a little bit more honesty about what can and can't be done. So where, where we've seen trust levels rise is when um, such consultations happen and someone says, we'll, we'll go along and say, look, we've got, this is what we can do. These are the range of options. We'd really like to know what you think of those options and come back to us with, that, with, with where your priorities are. So I think one is actually appropriate engagement and consultation and follow up because bad consultation is worse than no consultation. So I think uh, you know transparency in, in transparency, appropriate consultation, and also I think um, you know in, in Australia we do get we do get a lot of concerns around corruption. And one of the big changes that happened in Australia a few years ago in, in at our state level, we introduced this organisation called the Independent Commission Against Corruption, and the Independent Commission Against Corruption had the power to investigate um, all kinds of uh, political. Um, scandals and we're empowered to do so and, and appropriately fund it. And that really did build um, the trust levels at, at, between uh, the state population and the state governments. And ever since then, there's been a call to have an equivalent at the national level as well. So I think um, politicians making themselves accountable and uh, is, is, is a fundamental way in, in, rebuilding, in rebuilding trust. Mm -hmm. um, we're beginning to get questions about kind of the context of emergency and, and the pandemic. And I'm gonna come to those, but I'm gonna pose one first and then open up the door to some of the ones that are on, um, on the chat and in the Q&A. And um, what, are, what happens to rights and liberties in times of emergency and um, elections in times of an emergency? Um, what sorts of things are you thinking about and, and have you done work on? I'll go first if you don't mind, James. Um, yeah, please. So uh, one of my fields at the University of Wyoming is actually teaching uh, constitutional law through the political science program. And that's something we talk about is this notion of emergency constitutionalism uh, as a concept that says that, you know, the things that are embedded in our constitution that protect our civil rights and our civil liberties might actually not be all that firm in times of some sort of national emergency. Now, we can point to some examples from the past where during a time of national emergency, our government has done something that it probably would not have done under other circumstances. Uh, I can reach back all the way to the American Civil War uh, when the Southern states rebelled and fired on uh, the federal fort, uh, Fort Sumter. Uh, one of the first things that President Lincoln did was order the United States Navy to blockade all Southern ports. Now, as a matter of international law, a naval blockade is a de facto act of war. And yet, in the Constitution, the President of the United States does not have the power to declare war. That power resides solely among the Congress. So, was President Lincoln's power, uh, was his uh, executive order to deploy the Navy to blockade the Southern ports constitutional? Mm, on its face, no. But what we saw then is something that we've seen since then. Congress moved along after the president took executive action and then confirmed the president did the right thing. 
We see that time and again throughout history. Uh, for some more contemporaneous example of emergency constitutionalism, certainly the Patriot Act passed after the 9-11 terrorist attacks raised a lot of flags for civil libertarians concerned about government overreach. Um, you know, without a doubt, the Patriot Act gave the, um, the U.S. government the authority to surveil Americans in ways that it simply did not have before. But if you want something more ingrained in American society, you could go back to some of the programs that were pushed during World War II. So some of the programs that first were kicked around as an idea to combat the depression actually got rolled out as part of the war effort. We don't talk about many of those things uh, these days as being all that extraordinary because they've been such a fundamental part of US culture for so long, we don't even question them anymore. But this idea of how, you know, how does some sort of national emergency impact governmental authority, our trusting government, I think these are the right questions to be asking. Um, again, no crystal ball in the McConnell household. Um, I'm not quite sure how this thing's gonna play out with COVID-19, but certainly I think across the United States, we've seen some, gov uh, some state governments reach much further than they ever have before. I don't know that we've seen that in Wyoming. I think um, our state government's response has been generally pretty middle of the road. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting uh, in Australia, I think since um, the 9-11 terrorist attacks um, in New York, we, we um, I think we've introduced 21 pieces of legislation to uh, that have actually impinged upon Australian civil liberties. And most of them had sunset clauses and most of those sunset clauses have either been extended or removed. And so none of them actually have been rolled back. So we've actually seen, I think, an undermining of our civil liberties. And that has, I think, undermined, uh, significantly undermined some of the, the levels of trust in our government. And we see this at the moment because uh, earlier this week, the, the, the Australian federal government rolled out a COVID-19 app. And the, the aim of the app is to help track um, how the virus is moving along uh, amongst the, the, um, the, the population with the idea of identifying hotspots. But there's such a lack of trust that the government won't use this data for other things that, um, that you know, only, only a fraction of the population has downloaded it and has applied it to their smartphones. So, uh, you know, I think it does, it, I think governments have unfortunately taken advantage to, to undermine some of their civil liberties during times of crisis. And, uh, and I think the, the, the longer term result is, a, again, this impact on, on, on trust. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just want to pull a couple of questions that I'm seeing. And one is, um, at least in the last several days, there's been a discussion about the difference between trust at the federal level in the U.S. context and then how people are viewing governors. Some of the, some of the numbers are coming out. Is this something, mm. uh, do, you, do you see that trend? Um, and, and do you think, have we seen that before? The level, you know, the level of trust in the in the state or local government vis-a-vis -vis the federal government. Yeah, I mean, in, uh, the Australian context is kind of interesting as well because um, when Jason was discussing um, the the way that most Wyomingites uh, know someone in in, in government somehow um, is really interesting because in Australia, the, historically, the federal government has had higher levels of trust than state governments, which have had higher levels of trust than than local. Um, uh, than local governments. Um, 
And it's interesting, and, and you know, Jason said that one of the reasons that people tend to trust state government more in Wyoming is because they know know people. In Australia, it has the opposite effect. They because they know someone in state gov in local government, they tend to trust them less because they say, "I know that person. I'm not going to. I can't know. I can't trust that person." Um, so historically, that um, historically, federal governments have had higher levels of trust than state governments in Australia. I think over the last say decade, that it has changed dramatically. And I think it's because um, there's been a number of, you know, even in the, if you look at the last six months, uh, you know, we had we had wildfires in Australia over most of our 20, 2019, 2020 summer. Um, and it was seen that the state government acted much faster and with much more compassion uh, than what the federal government act, um, acted. Uh, in fact, our prime minister during the, the state of emergency went on holidays in, in Hawaii which he was, hard, he was widely, um, you know, had a huge impact on, on his popularity. Um, during the coronavirus, again, the, um, the state governments have been seen to be acting with more compassion and faster than, than federal government. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so I think that in, in, Australia, in the Australian context, we've seen a bit of a usurping of this, of this federal government historically being trusted more than state governments. And it, it sounds like that's kind of a, been a, a longer term trend in the, in the US. Jason, is that, do you know if that's consistent? Um, that is trust in state government higher than trust in federal government for most states? Do you, do you have any sense of that? I, I don't believe that's the trend. Um, I'm, I, don't quote me on that one. Uh, I don't believe that's true. I know trust in state government relative to, to the Fed is higher in Wyoming than it is in neighboring states. That is some data I'm familiar with. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a higher trust in our state government than our uh, neighbors to the south down in Colorado do, uh, than our neighbors to the west in uh, Utah do, so on and so forth. But I'm actually not familiar with the nat national data. I'm afraid I'd be walking too far out on the limb if I were to speculate on that. Mm -hmm. um, do you see a rise in uh, partisanship in the context of a COVID-19 crisis um, or do you think uh, some of the recent um, passage of bills in a bipartisan way with wrangling, but in the context of responses to it, does that, is that a harbinger for a reboot for uh, bipartisanship potentially in the United States? How do you, how do you view um, the passage of the you know, two plus trillion dollar uh, bailout, so to speak, and other things? You know, I, I would certainly hope it was some sort of a reboot. Um, you know, I, I think it's pretty fair to say this is the, you know, this is the largest crisis we've faced as a nation in my lifetime. I think that's easy to say. Uh, this is certainly the last time we faced some sort of pandemic like this, probably since 1919, uh, you know, Spanish flu, something like that. Um, you know, there've been other things like Ebola or SARS that have certainly been very, very scary, but with nothing near this number of cases spread out over so much of the country. Uh, I'll tell you what's, what the, I'll tell you what all of the chatter and the, uh, the partisan bickering and whatnot has actually reminded me of. Uh, it's actually reminded me of all of the chatter after Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. So if you remember, there was a great deal of uh, bickering between what the state government should have done, what the city of New Orleans should have done relative to what the US federal government should have done through FEMA. And eventually the Coast Guard, eventually the Coast Guard showed up. But 
Um, some of this wrangling and bickering and the finger pointing reminds me of what happened in the immediate aftermath of Katrina when so many Americans were out of their home, their lives were literally underwater. And then over time, we saw more people come together and agencies that had not been very good at working together in the past had to learn how to work better together. Uh, certainly, they had to find some level of cooperation. And so if you look at the response to hurricanes on the Gulf Coast immediately after Hurricane Katrina, so Katrina hit in 2005. If you look at the remainder of the 05 hurricane season or maybe 06 or 07 hurricane seasons, you'll see that the coordination between the state governments and the Fed actually got a little better. And so I don't know if that's a really perfect analog for what we're seeing right now, but it gives me a little bit of hope that maybe we can uh, set aside our bickering with each other long enough to actually figure out that we do have some interests that align with each other. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been interesting. Uh, I, I suppose this is a really challenging one in an election year. You know, it's so close to an election. We're only, what, six months away from the actual seven months, or six months away, yeah, now, from the, um, the actual election. And so I think how, um, you know, obviously, it, it's been interesting seeing the way that, um, the way that uh, the the different, you know, within the U.S., the Democrats um, and the Republicans are sort of are, um, are negotiating, which is which is fantastic. But then also going out and trying to score political points about, oh, well, they wanted this and we stopped this happening, and oh, they just want to give money. So so yeah, so you're still seeing it rear its head. And I think because it's so close to election, it's going to be very hard for um, for the parties not to uh, not to um, uh, not not to sort of turn this into a bit of a partisan partisan fight. And what's what's really interesting as well is um, historically, I think a lot of political scientists actually thought that the the, the closer that uh, an election is, the more likely um, that negotiations were were due to happen. Um, what we've actually found is that the closer an election is, the more likely partisanship divides uh, are likely to be followed um, as as people are doing everything they can to kind of bring each other down and they know that, that they can bring each other down, they only need a little bit of a, only a little bit of an edge to, to win the election. And so this seems to be, is going to be a very, very close election. So I think, you know, I mean, again, no crystal ball in, in um, the Ivana Parker's household, but uh, I do get that feeling that, um, that the, that, you know, it'd be nice to think that this might be a reset, but I think the, 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 the tone of the um, the lead up to the the election in in November will definitely um, see things getting pretty pretty ugly and a lot of finger pointing about who did what when or how fast they did it and, and so on. There's actually a question in the chat about the effect of the pandemic on the 2020 election, and you you've alluded to that. Is there, are there any other things that that you would see as potentially how this pandemic? can influence the election. And I don't know, maybe you even have a historical um, comparison that you might think about, but. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting that 538 did this really great podcast about how, um, how upheavals have influenced elections before. You know, the, the election happened during, there was elections during World War One. there was elections during World War II, um, there was elections during the, I think during leading up to the 1918 pandemic and so on. So. Or, you know, so um, so elections have been disrupted before by um, by uh, by sort of national international upheavals, um, and this one I think will also be obviously affected 
by, by that. Um, you know, there's been a push to increase the the number of states or to change the way that that um, that you know uh, postal voting can work, especially where postal voting doesn't happen. Um, some people are resistant to that for for, for complex reasons, um, some some obvious reasons, and so there's a, a push and a shove. I suppose in one way, um, the the you see that the bump in the Trump administration followed uh, the, in the last you know probably about a month ago there was a significant jump and I think Donald Trump had the highest approval rating of his of his political career um, and part of that was driven by the fact that he's there every day he's in people's lounge rooms every day giving a daily briefing and uh, and you know and, and he's kind of um, you know despite going off script a few times uh, most people were saying yeah he's following the advice of a lot of the scientific community um, you know the, the reverse of that is yeah he does go off he does go off script and consequently um you know a lot of people have been criticizing the way that he hasn't responded fast enough so it's a bit unknown and we've seen his his bump sort of decrease quite dramatically um in the last couple of weeks so yeah so it will play a role um but yeah it's very hard for joe biden and democrats to get any sort of traction in with you know grab people's attention at the moment and so yeah it will have a significant impact i think but just how it i think it's it's still a, a big question mark so, hey, I'd like to come back to uh, something James started with a second ago, and that was this notion of mail-in voting. Um, I actually went to graduate school in Washington State, go Cougs. Um, and when I first got there, uh, in my first election cycle living in Washington State, I got this big envelope in the mail one day. And when I opened it up, it looked like a ballot, and there was this big booklet describing all of the candidates. And it said, you know, mark your choices here and then drop in the mailbox. I actually thought it was a scam. I thought it was something Ill illegal. I did not think it was true until I mentioned it to my neighbor who was actually a lifetime Washingtonian who said, no, man, this is what we do here. We vote by mail. And it completely blew me away. Uh, the way Washington State does it, you should know, is actually relatively comprehensive. Um, I got that packet in the mail roughly uh, six weeks, maybe eight weeks before the election. Uh, there were a number of things done by the Secretary of State's office to verify who I was. And in fact, I did have to register to vote ahead of time. That's why they sent me the packet. And so, you know, after living in uh, Washington State for, I guess, six years, um, you know, I'm of the mindset that mail-in voting can work, but I don't think it can work on a whim. Uh, if that's mm -hmm. something that states are truly going to be interested in doing for no the November election, um, you know, in, in government time, people are going to have to move into overdrive to actually come up with these sorts of systems to get them in place to actually run their election effectively, securely. Um, I was very, very impressed with Washington's system the more I learned about it. But, you know, again, gang, that's not something they did just overnight. Uh, that's something they actually debated for a, a significant period of time. Yeah, and I think that's, again, I think this is, again, where trust happens to, to play a role, right? Like, how do you, if, if you don't have a trust in the system, and then all of a sudden you say, hey, we're moving to, to online, to our postal votes, um, you know, this close to the election without much information, without any consultation, you, you just, you can't see it being, you can't see it being successful. So I think if they, you know, they, 
I mean, when I, when I say if they go ahead with the November election, I mean, they, they will go ahead with the November election. I think they're going to have to do some serious thinking about how to proceed, especially if um, if social distancing, social distancing continues to be an issue. Mm -hmm. There's a one of the things you've discussed in other contexts, James, is a notion of radical centrism. And we've been talking about, uh, we've been talking about partisanships and divides, uh, but we have a question um, from actually Kendi Hartman asking about um, if you would discuss radical centrism a little bit, um, it resonated with her. And, you know, I think you might have to say what you mean by that. And to what degree does that play in, let's just say, democratic politics generally, but also in this COVID context? Yeah, um, thanks. I, I suppose um, there's, there's been a lot of research that indicates that we first choose a political party. You know, historically, what we've always thought is we've, we've had a bunch of ideas. Um, and then what we do is we, we start mapping those ideas to who we think best represents us, you know, our political preferences. And uh, what we're finding increasingly is that people are actually picking a side and then from there... Um, and then from there, just accepting all those, even if they contradict with their, with their political priorities. So my, my idea of radical centrism and what I've been pushing is to, is to resist um, the, the kind of the personality politics and kind of um, identify the issues that are important to me and, and work with those and accept the fact that, um, that compromise um, is, is the best way forward, that, that there is no one position there is no one political party or one position that is going to give you all the answers, and that um, that finding the only way to find forward is to the only way forward is to compromise, and um, and so rather than approaching something as a as a zero sum game whereby I win and you lose, if you approach it by saying, well, where, where do we, where do we, um, where can we both find, where can I give a little and take a little and find find that that centre position, and you know historically. Um, you know, I suppose historically I could describe myself as a bit of a cultural warrior as well, you know, having one political position and really driving it forward and wanting that to, 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 to be forward. But then what I, what I discovered was, or what I, I kind of learned was that actually um, what I was making decisions on was not on what I thought was the best outcome, but what would give me the, what would give my political side the win, you know, in a way. So I suppose radical centrism is to turn around and say, well, actually, let's, Let's begin with this idea that I don't have all the answers, and that um, alternative. Uh, I need to hear a bunch of alternative perspectives and find a, a compromise forward. And um, and I think that's kind of and, and resisting that that being pushed. And look, what um, I know, uh, Dr. John Rees, who is I, I know is listening at the moment or is online, he just asked a question. And uh, John, um, is, I'm pleased to say, will be the next Millard um, Simpson um, Fulbright Scholar to follow me um, next year. Um, uh, he, you know, one of the, one of the things that we, we've always spoken about is how, you know, the, the more in common uh, report that he just quoted um, has found that uh, extreme political positions are almost like extreme religious positions. You, you kind of seek purity within your group um, and if people don't meet that purity, then you you ostracise them out. And we see both you know, far left and far right politics do this. And so I, I suppose radical centrism is just sort of saying, actually, there is no pure position. Every position is a position of compromise. Every position is a position of, of negoti negotiation. And I think, you know, if we are going to move forward in, in this, in, this in, in, in many of the grand challenges, you know, um, you know, for example, 
you know, I, I truly believe that we need to respond to, to, to global warming. Um, but to sit there and say, let's shut down all coal power plants is, is not a way forward, right? Because you're talking about impacting people's livelihoods. You're talking about, you know, the states in Australia like Queensland or Wyoming, you know, just losing all their income. How can you take that position that everything must shut down? So um, you might philosophically say, well, I, in an ideal world, let's, let's think about that would be what we would do but this is not an ideal world. This is a world of compromise, a world of people being worried about their livelihoods. Um, and so let's find what is pragmatic. Let's not, the, let's not let the good get in the way of the perfect, so to speak. Let's find the pragmatic um, way forward. And I think if you look at any of the grand challenges we face from, from COVID to, you know, as I said, climate change to entrenched inequality, finding a compromise position forward is, um, is, is definitely the way to go. And in many ways, what I've tried to do is to bring that into my classroom, to take that position into my classroom. And, and um, you know, it'd be great if we get a chance to talk about the concept of, of brave spaces versus safe spaces in classrooms, where, uh, where you, you sort of work with, with different students to, to sort of talk about how do we compromise on our different political positions. Mm -hmm. I, hope that, I hope that answered the question. Yeah. Um... So one of the very early questions um, in our discussion was about nationalism. And so whether it's back to our more general discussion about democracy or even in a pre and post COVID environment, how does nationalism play into this? I mean, we've had some, uh, James, I don't know if you've seen it, but in the United States, there's been some discussion of, it was on NPR this morning about, uh, you know, it's this America first piece and how does that relate with you know, institutions, et cetera, et cetera, around the world. So what would your comments be from, from both of you on the, on nationalism? You. Okay. Um, well, again, I think it, it, nationalism and is, is uh, also, it's, it's quite contextual in a way, um, the way that we, it, we, we see nationalism and, and populism play out. Um, I think it's, you know, I think there are times where, um, where we've kind of, shifted the bar too far one way and too far the other way so you know when when we were when when all the trend was globalization it was about ripping down all national borders and you know becoming totally independent and 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 and, and so on and i think that is, that's not a sustainable position because you know what we've seen during this time of COVID is that you know nations do have their own supply chains or have to have their own supply chains to 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 draw on things national nations are still a number one are the main sort of i suppose if nothing else the main sort of bureaucratic agency that that shapes our lives um and where we have where we have a feeling we have the most um the most voice um but at the same time um what we do know is when we face a global crisis like a pandemic or climate change or, or terrorism and other things, we do need national international cooperation. So I think that what's what's important is that um, that you know we, we stop these extremes where we either we either sort of embrace globalization in such a way that we don't worry about you know our own sort of domestic food supply and domestic supply chains, um, which is you know where we sort of were heading at one point or we, we kind of close our borders. I mean, the reasons why we're closing our borders at the moment, but we close our borders and become so insular looking that we forget that we're part of a global community facing global challenges. So trying to find that, that balance in between. And, you know, I think there are reasons why we want to have um, our own supply change when it comes to, to food or it comes to protecting our own oil supplies or it comes to, um, 
to having our own medical supplies. Um, and I think that's really important. And I think there, there is no reason why, um, there is no reason why a certain level of patriotism and nationalism doesn't, has to, there's no reason why that has to come into conflict, con conflict with approaching the world from a, from a globalist perspective at the same time. I think there is a balance there that we, we need to strive for. Mm -hmm. Jason, you have any? Yeah. Nope. I know we're getting pressed on time and I know there's so many people with questions. I yeah. don't that I can add much to that. Yeah, I'm going to do a, um, a couple more that, that we had in our own script, and then I'm going to go, I, yeah, I've been bringing them in, but I'll bring in some of the others from, from the chat. And, and, but it, it's related to some of the, uh, the Q&A. How far, I mean, pandemic, this pandemic is a crisis. A lot of times we think of crises as really causing a lot of change. And so there's been a lot, there's a discussion and speculation about how far, you know, what is the new normal? Um, how far will we return to normal uh, after something like the COVID-19 pandemic? Um, I, uh, I took a handful of classes on uh, public policy in grad school and learned a lot of different theories about uh, how we actually develop public policy. Some of them I think are absolute trash, but uh, a few I think are actually onto something my favorite's actually uh, a model called punctuated equilibriums. And it uses as an analog the way that tectonic plates slide along against each other. So, you know, I'm not a volcanologist or a geologist, but even a simple social science kid like me can understand tectonic plates will build up a lot of tension over time. And then eventually that tension builds to such a level that the plates slide and then they never return to the way they were before. They're here now. And so this punctuated equilibriums model says that when there's some sort of punctuation point, it changes public policy forever. It changes the culture within which that policy serves the needs of the people. It changes that forever too. And so from that perspective, you know, uh, good Lord, I hope I can go back and sit in pubs with good friends like you in the future um, but my guess is there are going to be some parts of American life that never go back to the way they were. Um, I'm not sure which parts those are, but I have been hearing from my friends and colleagues about how they've been adjusting their routine and they've been discovering things that they like better now than the way they were doing them before. My guess is even when we have an opportunity to go back to the way it was before, some of us are going to make choices to not. That's mm -hmm. my guess. Uh, and I think we'll sort those things out over time. I don't know, James, what do you think about Australia? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's been a lot of conversation here about um, just about the, the telecommuting becoming a new, um, uh, a new norm. Uh, people working from home a lot more. Um, you know, there's been discussions that if you can get if you can get your workforce to work from home one day a week, that's 20% less traffic on the road, uh, which would you know, have a significant impact on, on resourcing and, and traffic jams and, and so to speak. So that's, that's where the, a lot of the discussion has been having. A lot of people are talking about in spending more time um, just with family, you know, so it's, it's been a more of a, 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 social, a, a, a social discussion. Um, and, and I think um, the, the other part that's really been bouncing around here is um, 
is a recognition that, uh, you know, in, in Australia, one of the big differences in Australia um, to the US is just the role that government plays in our lives. You know, it has such a big, bigger role in everything from, from Medicare for all uh, to, um, to the fact that 39 of Australia's 40 universities are publicly owned. And so um, one of the discussions has been to, to review the way that our um, healthcare system um, is being managed and how, I've, you know, there's been a sense of feeling that, that it's been neglected, like the National Health Service in, in the UK, it's been neglected for a number of, of, of years, if not decades, and that there needs to be a, a serious reinvestment, um, an additional reinvestment. So there's discussions about national priorities, there's discussions about working from home, there's discussions around family time, and discussions around international travel. I mean, what will happen when international borders open up? Um, will domestic travel, once again, you know, become the, the, the most popular uh, travel destination in Australia tends tend to travel internationally. So there's a number of social and cultural things that people are talking about changing. Um, and I think that will, some of those will have longer term consequences and impacts on the way that we, we see how our lives operate. Mm -hmm. I wonder, Jean, can I just say the best COVID-19 meme I've seen so far says Wyoming, social distancing since 1886. Ah, from that perspective, hey, maybe, you know, maybe we were cool before we knew it. Maybe we're never going back because we've always been here. I don't know, man. Sorry. <laughs> um, I want to just pose one more question that we had talked about um, doing and then, then really go through uh, many of the questions on the chat board. And, and I invite you both to look at those and see which of those you also specifically would like to address. But this is looping this conversation back to the role of universities. This is the brave and safe spaces that uh, I think you mentioned brave spaces a little bit, James. Um, but what, what are the what's the role of the university in these discussions or, you know, is and maybe should be because maybe maybe the university, you know, maybe the university isn't doing it what it should be doing. I mean, I realize it's a value judgment, but maybe the is and the should from your perspective. Yeah, look, I, I've I'll tell you, I mean, I'll, I'll maybe a bit of a, a story. Um, a few years ago when I was a, a postgrad student, I was doing my PhD and I was at a, in a classroom in Australia and there was a, a, young, uh, a young girl, she was 19, um, and she asked a question about Australia's, about, um, Australia's First Nation people, Aboriginal people, and she asked it in a very clumsy way, um, probably in a politically incorrect way was her question. But her question, I think, really was a, a something that, um, uh, you know, she, she asked it with all the right intention. She wanted to understand a, a certain issue that was, was, that was being discussed at the time. And I remember the, the teacher at the time, the, the lecturer at the time, that um, really gave her a hard time about the inappropriate language that she used. Um, and that created, that kind of shut down conversation in the classroom for a long time because people were too scared to ask questions. And so I think the idea of we've, we've I think sometimes we've got ourselves caught in these in these um, in these positions where we're too scared to ask questions because either we're not confident with the language or the the, the knowledge that we have or we don't want to offend people and and I think the the you know and I understand that there are certain topics which we really need to be careful and sensitive in discussing which is where the safe space idea comes from but brave spaces is also creating an environment where people can ask uncomfortable questions and challenge each other in an uncomfortable way. And my, my argument is, um, and you know, I've really worked hard on this over the last decade is, is um, my argument is if we can't ask uncomfortable questions within the university setting, if we can't ask our, 
if our 19 year old students or our 18 year old students or even colleagues who have a radically different position to me can't ask questions which are uncomfortable and sometimes clumsy and we use those moments to unpack both the language and also the topic that they bring um, then that that for me is is accepting the fact that education is uncomfortable is what the concept of brave spaces is all about and so um you know i think i think emo our brains are you know no different the, the brain I, I feel is like no different like any other muscle you want to grow muscle you lift weights and it, it creates a it creates a rip in your muscles um and i think the brain needs to be challenged in that way as well and and so you know when we talk about you know recently one of my uio classes um, in the citizenship class, we ran a, we, we talked about um, feminism in politics and, you know, and, and it was a class of 27 students, radically different um, perspectives across the 27 students, um, uh, if, you know, from one extreme to the other. But, you know, the way that that was discussed was respectful. People spoke to each other rather than at each other. And I think if we, and, and but what I also did was we created the environment. Where we said, look, if someone says something clumsy or says something to offend you, don't just jump at the offense or the language, explain what the issue is and why it's an issue and have that conversation. Don't get caught up in the, in the word, get, let's talk about the sentiment. And so um, I think that's really important that we do that because what we do need to do is, you know, the way I describe it is that we need to make sure that our students in our classes can have these conversations outside the classroom. They can have it over Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner. They can have it in a bar with friends or in a cafe um, and, and unpack some of these issues and find ways to talk to people with who they radically disagree with. Because if you don't, then what ends up happening is we'll just continue to, to perpetuate, perpetuate the bubble. And I think both political extremes have their own version of political correctness. And I think what we need to do is break those down and so, so people can have conversations rather than just talking to the people they agree with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, you know, I was a kid that lived a relatively homogenous life until I went off to college. Uh, it was the first time I ever met people with a fundamentally different uh, faith system, a fundamentally different religion. Uh, for that matter, fundamentally different politics than those that I grew up around. And so I certainly think that higher education, uh, you know, colleges and universities have a role to play in expanding uh, young people's horizons, expanding their thinking ability to understand and relate with the world around them, including other people they may disagree with. Uh, an analogy that I think about pretty frequently is a swimming pool analogy. It uh, turns out whenever I go to uh, the Laramie Rec Center to swim or something like that, you know, it's comforting that there are lifeguards around. Uh, I'm a pretty good swimmer, but that being said, when I see them on duty, I like that. Uh, that being said, I'm pretty sure if we asked the lifeguards, they would say they like having patrons who can swim. And so as a university, I think it's important that we strike a balance in teaching our, you know, teaching our students that once they leave us, there may be a lifeguard around, but there may not be. And either way, they need to learn how to swim. And, you know, they're not the only person in the water. By the way, there are things other than people in the water. And so, you know, I think there's a role for higher education to play in preparing people for what comes. And what's going to come at you later in life isn't always going to be someone that whispers sweet nothings in your ear telling you stuff you agree with. You're going to have to find out, a, uh, you're going to have to figure out a way to relate to other people and get along with them. 
uh, I think that's a valuable life skill, and for sure we have a role to um, a role to play in that. Mm -hmm. So there are a number of questions um, that I know you've been able to view as well, and I wanted to see if there's um, one in particular or two that each of you might want to address. Um, if not, I'll, I'll pull a couple, but I wanted to give you, um, maybe James, if you had one that you're seeing in the chat, or uh, just as a reminder, we also, the panelists can also see a series of questions through Q&A that only we can see. So is there something there that you'd like to address? Um, I suppose the, there's one question from, um, that's about do, do students, do, um, uh, do we do a good, do universities do a good job um, in in creating those brave spaces? Um, you know, I think, you know, I think one of the challenges for us, you know, in, I think different disciplines have different, um, uh, different disciplines uh, are, are dominated by different sort of uh, dominant, are dominated by certain types of philosophical thinking. And so, for example, traditionally in the humanities, uh, discipline where, where I come from, we are um, we uh, often position ourselves as being sort of I suppose leftists, you know, progressives, uh, and um, and I think often the the way that we talk and the language that we use uh, and the way that we even you know, even the theorists that we present often um, uh, exclude those who are who may have different positions with us, and so the problem with that is that students then quickly learn. Uh, to imitate uh, what they hear us saying, and so they they're too scared to kind of go. Okay, I'm going to push against this because if I push against this, I might not get the marks that I need to to, to ace it. And I think sometimes we've been very bad. So I think there's a, a job within um, within academia itself, within certain dif disciplines, um, to to actually really do expose themselves to different ideas. And you know, my first degree was in economics, and the only economics I learned really was was. Uh, was sort of neoliberal liberal economics and all other sort of economic think, um, systems were dismissed, and I don't. Th I think that that left me as a poorer student. And I think if if as a humanities lecturer I only talk about progressive uh, thinking and don't look at the don't look at conservatives and and other kinds of ideas, then I think I'm letting my students down, and we're not creating those kinds of environments where we can have brave spaces. So I think that's one one important point to, to pick up on one of the questions. Jason, is there anything? Well, I, Amy Lou poses a question in the Q&A about these protests. Um, certainly states like Michigan have had all sorts of protests of uh, their government actions in response to the COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, the, question, uh, the question posed in the Q&A was effectively, you know, is, is shutting down those protests a violation of their First Amendment rights? Well, yeah, of course it is. So inherently, there's some tension there between what are, what are our inherent rights and liberties and what can the government do during a time of emergency that they cannot do during normal circumstances, which, by the way, I'm sure some of you are astute enough to have picked up on the fact, guess who gets to decide how long the emergency persists? Well, the government does. And so, uh, you know, inherently, there's going to be some tension there. Um, I was reading the news just before our uh, Think and Drink started tonight. Uh, I saw that there was actually another protest in the Michigan Capitol tonight. Mm -hmm. um, things there have been getting very, very rowdy. 
Uh, I know there have been protests over in front of the Capitol in Cheyenne, but I don't believe anything nearly as rowdy as what Michigan's been seeing. And so you have to ask yourself, you know, is it a violation of their rights? And then if so, so what? So something I try to remind my students in class um, as often as I can, our legal system is 100% reactive. So imagine this, if you will, uh, some protester in Michigan gets arrested because the police say they cannot protest at the Capitol because of the pandemic lockdown. Uh, so then that individual lawyers up, some lawyer takes the case because they know they've got a winner and then they sue. So is their case going to be validated as it moves up the federal food chain? Yeah, probably. But now you have to think about the timeline, gang. Um, the scenario in which their rights are actually going to be validated by some federal judge, it's going to be months, if not more than a year after the actual protest event where they were handcuffed and hauled off. So is it a violation of their rights? Yeah, probably. But um, it's not like they can just stand there and whip out their pocket copy of the Constitution and say, you know, get back, copper. You can't arrest me. That's probably not going to help them much. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to just push this issue of the pandemic as a crisis. Um, this is way different than World War II and the kind of social change that came about. Um, maybe this gets back to the question of lasting effects. Um, we have not seen, except for a very brief time, a rally around the flag, a rally around the president with this. So what's different or what, what, what kind of implications do we see? So we, we use the language of crisis, um, but it's also uh, different than, uh, you know, guns and bombs kinds of things or 9-11 as a crisis. Um, do you see, how do you see that maybe leading to what changes or, or lack of change that we might have from this? I mean, one of the interesting things, you know, and this is why I think a lot of economists are really struggling to talk about the impact here is that usually when there's a, a crisis, be it, you know, um, a military crisis um, or an economic crisis, like we had the Great Recession uh, in 2007, 2008, what we require is to do more, right? What we do is we, we, we want to go out and we want to stimulate the economy. We want to drive things forward. We want to, we want to, as, you know, physically rally, like work together. Um, in, in a way, this is like the opposite. It's like the way that they're telling us to do, the, the way that we're expected to do it is to do less. You stay at home, don't, don't do that, you know? So I think um, part of it is just how difficult it is for people, I mean, for people to understand how to respond, you know? And if this, you know, it's, it's also kind of wacky that this is such a deadly virus and the number one piece of advice is wash your hands. Like it's, it's kind of, you know, that creates a disconnection. Like, like in my head, I'm like, okay, a virus is like, you know, you, you, in your image, you have this like super dangerous shaped thing heading your way. And someone's saying, yeah, just wash your hands for like 30 seconds, sing happy birthday twice, and then make sure you dry them properly. So I think it's, it's been really hard for people to, to, um, to actually fathom what this actually is. And it's been very hard. There's no economic model <laughs> And there's not, not even a patriotic model, I suppose, a, a populist model to try and, um, and get people to rally around this response. Sure, there's, 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 
there's certain areas which you can encourage to do more, you know, build more medical equipment and things like that. But it is, it's, it's in some ways like nothing else we've ever actually dealt, you know, had to manage before. Mm -hmm. Well, certainly very rapid unemployment. <laughs> well, yeah, and economic you know, impacts. And, yeah, and I mean, look, and you know, like I mean, what Jason said about the protests, I think is is really important for us to remember, and. Um, you know, I think it's something like forty percent of Americans, if they get hit with a four hundred dollar bill, um, unexpected bill, will either have to sell something or borrow money. And it's some significant number of households in America. In in, in America, I think it's something like at least one in three um, American citizens, if hit with a two thousand dollar bill, will lose their house because they won't have the ability to to um, to you know to pay it off. So you you, you know, um, and a two thousand dollar bill is you know if you own a car or you have a child, that is that bill is around the corner, right? Um, and so I think that sense of precariousness and and um, and desperation that people are feeling is real. You know, it's it's so real. And in, in um, you know, it's it's for some for some folk who are living a comfortable middle class environment um, lifestyle, you look at the protests and you think, oh, they must be mad going out there. But I think people who are living precarious life, you know, have precarious lives. This is a, this crisis, this, you know, and it makes sense that they turn around and say, I, I feel that the cure is worse than the disease because the disease is hard to imagine if, if that makes, makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, there's an interesting question here from Josh um, that, that I'd like to invite you to address. It's, he says, to summarize poorly, I think this overall theme is about finding a center and finding more trust. Uh, what do you think about? Are you familiar? I'm gonna I'm gonna um, completely massacre the name. Uh, I don't know if it's Bitekofer or Bitekofer, uh, but are you familiar with Dr. Bitekofer's theories at all? No, I'm not actually. Okay, okay. Um, but her idea is that if we think there is an informed, engaged American voter or a majority, we're wrong, and that most voting, if not if not in support of the candidate, is primarily just about not the other. If true, how can we move towards a more engaged voter and more trust if it seems that we're fighting a large culture of the opposite in America? Yeah, look, that's a, that's a really great question. And again, it's, it's, um, it's something that plays out within the Australian context as well. And I think part of that um, is trying to find ways to, um, to engage and empower people about decisions that influence their lives. And this is not about the, the kind of fatigue that, that Jason spoke about it's you know it's, it's we've seen experiments uh, or, or pilots where we have things like um, democratic budgeting where you know where local governments in parts of Australia have have put have invited the um, have invited members of the community to to have a voice in how you know in what in what they should prioritize um, with you know with their sort of capital works and their spending and and this is this has um, encouraged people to feel a lot more empowered and engaged with political processes. And I think that that's the kind of thing that we really need to push for, because even though something like um, compulsory voting in Australia, I think, you know, really does suit Australia when you've got a small population of 25 million people, um, you know, you really do need to get as many people to vote as you can. What I think that hides is, you know, the 90, 90 to 95% of people that vote, uh, eligible voters that vote, what that hides is the growing sense of disconnection and the growing sense that people aren't feeling um, represented. And so do people either do, yeah, 
either better that you know the often attitude that's better the devil that you know than than the one that you don't um uh or you know we have to give the other guys a go because these guys are so terrible um i think there are ways we can try and get people engaged in political processes that are, are, are more than just voting mm -hmm. so we're we're getting close to the end here and i i wanted to see and I want to say a couple of thank yous at the end, but I want to give you each a minute, maybe just to, some final thoughts and how you might, how would you want to wrap up or what thoughts would you thought or thoughts would you want to leave us with um, given this fairly wide ranging discussion? I'll go. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, while I, I'm <clears throat> familiar with uh, the, the scholar that Josh brought to our, Joshua brought to our attention, um, you know, to the extent that, uh, their work was paraphrased in the chat, you know, I tend to agree. I think it's absolutely silly to think that every single American out there is 100% informed and engaged. We know that's not true. Uh, you don't have to watch something like Jimmy Fallon or some other show that does interviews with people on the street to know, you know, a lot of people are not all that well informed and the people who are well informed typically are so about some narrow topic instead of a broad range of things. I mean, even when we get into government, people specialize. And so, you know, I, I guess if I had to summarize, I'd say, um, you know, my own personal thought on how we can overcome some of these challenges facing democracy in the United States and then in Australia and other, you know, other industrialized democracies around the world is I'd love to see us focus more on the things we have in common as compared to all of the things that uh, we point out as being different among us. You know, I, I've never met anyone who wasn't focused on, you know, their kid's future in one way or another. I've never met anyone who was super fired up about paying more in taxes because they think the government's amazing all the time. No, everyone has things in common. They're like, ah, I don't understand why they're doing this or why they're doing that. I would really love for us to see I would really love to see us come together as a nation and focus on things that we can celebrate about each other as compared to um, our current national pastime, which is, you know, he did this, he did that, she said so-and-so, oh yeah, well, she said this before. I don't think any of it's productive, certainly not when we've got some sort of pandemic facing all of us. Mm -hmm. Look, very, very quickly, you know, the more in common report that I spoke before found that 85% of Americans want compromise, you know, that's, that's more than eight out of 10. That's almost nine out of 10 of Americans want compromise. Um, we need to listen to those. We need to get, gather those people. Compromise is a hard rallying cry. It's hard to get people excited about compromise. You know, hey, hey, let's compromise is not a very good chant. But I think, yeah, picking up on what Jason said, yeah, we have a lot more in common than what we give you credit for, and we need to build on, on that. So I'm kind of optimistic. Mm -hmm. So um, I'd, I'd like to thank you both uh, for, um, you know, taking our questions tonight. And I want to say um, very much thank you to the Wyoming Institute for Humanities Research for their hosting of us, um, the Malcolm Wallop Civic Engagement Initiative. Um, one correction, um, actually, you know, the other partner, uh, equal partner in this has been, of course, the Wyoming Humanities Council, uh, who brings great discussions. If you're from Wyoming, you know that they go around the state and do uh, fantastic programming. Um, and it's been very great to be their partner over time. And of course, the Mellon Foundation, which is underwriting um, with them a series of things. 
but I needed to correct that and for the Malcolm Wallach Civic Engagement Initiative, it's, it's the Tucker Foundation. I think I said Turner previously, uh, but we're really thankful to uh, the friends and the Tucker Foundation that make it possible. And I guess what I would say, I would invite the people who had a question that did not get addressed to maybe just email one of us directly. We all have UYO addresses and I, I'll just speak for Jason and James. I think they're very willing to engage and, and um, and, and they know some of you as well, but there's been a series of questions that we haven't been able to get to. Um, and I wanna thank you for, for those. Um, big shout out to Scott Hinkle for um, putting this all together. And I think with that, we're uh, um, you know, kind of a final thought is, thank you for joining us tonight. Um, we need to do a shout out for next week's Think and Drink, which is on the history of pandemics, I believe. Um, and there. yep, so please join Scott and the Wire crew next week at 5.30. Same URL that you had. Thank you. Thank you.